Good morning, my Christian brothers and sisters. It is so good to be with you this morning. We're reading from Luke chapter 15, from verse 1 to 32. And while I have the mic and you're looking up the passage, everybody brags about their life group. I don't know if ours is the best or not, but one thing I can say about our life group It's the most loving, praying group I have ever been in. So here we read from Luke 15, verse 1 to 32. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, If he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents." And he said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into the far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country, who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father." And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And as he arose and came to his father, but while he was still long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his oldest son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, 
Your brother has come home, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never give me a young goat that I may celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property and with prostitutes, and you, and you killed the fattened calf for him, and he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. It will be of great help if you can keep your Bibles open on the passage that uh, Carol read for us. Uh, thank you, Carol, for the Bible reading. Thanks, Hedy, for the prayer. Uh, these are the ladies from the life group that Lee Martin leads in Vona Valley. So if you happen to be in Vona Valley, uh, speak to Lee. Apparently, it's one of the best life group in Vona Valley. So you're more than welcome to speak to him. Let me pray for us as we come to God's word. Lord Jesus, I pray that we will see you for who you really are, as the one who has loved us in spite of who we are, as the one who seeks for us and who embraces us, sinners as we are. And Lord, I pray as your servant that the word of my mouth and the meditation of my heart will be acceptable to you. O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. What is God's attitude towards sinners? How do I know that God will welcome me home when I repent from my sins? Am I beyond the reach of God's forgiveness? Maybe this is you this morning. You look at your life and you are so disappointed with the sin that is in your life. And you wonder if really God still loves you. The passage that we have in front of us is one of the well-known chapters in the New Testament. The parable of the three lost. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons. This passage reassures us of God's great love for the sinners. We all know that God hates sin, but God rejoices when sinners repent. Before we dig into our passage, it is important to understand the context in which these parables are told. And Luke does a great job as he helps his reader each and every time when he tells a parable so that they can grasp what is happening. You will notice, for example, in Luke chapter 10, the passage that already opened for us three, four weeks ago. A lawyer asked Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus tells him that he must love God with all his heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love his neighbors as himself. And him being a good lawyer... The men respond with another question, and who is my neighbor? And then Jesus answered him out of this context by telling him the parable of the Good Samaritan, which Reggie opened for us 
When we get to Luke chapter 12, the passage that we looked at last week, the context is an argument between brothers regarding inheritance. Someone in the crowd asked Jesus to settle the matter between him and his brother as to regard to the inheritance. And in verse 15, Jesus says, A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possession. And then he went on to tell the parable of the rich fool. You can see this pattern over and over in Luke's gospel as he helps his audience to understand the background information before he tells the parable. And chapter 15 that Carol read for us is not different. You read in verses 1 and 2, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So obviously the audience here is made of tax collectors, sinners, Pharisees, and scribes. Jesus is being criticized for welcoming sinners and having fellowship with them. And in verse 3, we read that he's addressing directly to these scribes and tax col- and, 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 and Pharisees. Sorry. So the Pharisees and the scribes would have been the religious people of the time. They were very much concerned about being acceptable before God by obeying the law to the T. In verse 2, we read that these religious people, they are grumbling saying that Jesus is eating with sinners. Why do they grumble? Who are these sinners and tax collectors? And for us to understand why these Pharisees are grumbling, it will be helpful to understand who are the sinners, who are the tax collectors. And of course, we know that these people are grumbling because they misunderstand God's love for sinners. The Pharisees, they classified people who did not keep the law of Moses as people of the land or sinners. These were people not walking in God's ways. These people, the people of the land, are the people who violate the acceptable standards of Jewish culture or Jewish conduct whether in the eyes of Pharisees or whether in the eyes of God. Simply put, the people of the land, they are bad Jews. They are hardly considered real Jews at all. This is what one author says about the people of the land. I quote, When a man is one of the people of the land, entrust no money to him. Take no testimony from him. Trust him with no secret. Do not appoint him guardian of an orphan. Do not make him custodian of charitable funds. Do not accompany him on a journey. To marry a daughter to one of them was like exposing her bound and helpless to a lion. So the Pharisees made sure that there was a barrier, a complete barrier between them and the people of the land. These people of the land were ritually unclean. A Pharisee was forbidden to be a guest of a people of the land. And they could not host a people of the land. That's how it was. 
What about the tax collectors? It's even worse. First of all, they fall under the people of the land. So everything I've said before applies to them. But who were they? Just like today, we all know that the tax collectors are not the most liked people. We don't really like them. And this was not different from Jesus' time. People hated the tax collectors with passion, and rightly so. You will remember during Jesus' time, the Roman Empire was dominating the world at that time, and Palestine was under them, their rule. So the Romans would not collect their own tax. But what did they do? Well, they opened up tenders. This is how the scenario would look like. Jewish tax collectors will come together and form some kind of investment companies. They will submit their bid to Rome to pay the people's tax for a year in advance. The company that wins the contract will pay money to Rome as agreed in the contract. And they, in, in return, will have all the power to collect taxes to cover their cost. Any money they collect in excess is theirs, not for Rome. Tax on its own was not a problem. People understood that they need to pay tax, just like we do. I hope all of us, we understand that. The profit made by the tax collectors was not also a big problem. It was their business. They need to earn their living. The problem was that the tax collectors made profit by cheating and swindling or using deception, and they made profit on the expense of their own people. There was no tax rate for any good. You wouldn't know what to pay for anything. It's not like today. There was nothing that was computerized. You couldn't know what do you pay for any item that you have. Assessment of your goods or your items was done as soon as you get to the booth where you find a tax collector. Two people with the same item would pay two different taxes. Or one person with the same item on two different days will pay two different taxes. And of course, there was no board of appeal. No complaint to anyone because no justice will be done as long as Rome is happy. These are the people known by everyone in the society as being rich to the expense of their own fellow citizens, but also they are known to be very corrupted. That's why they were not allowed in the synagogue. The Pharisees will never allow them. It was said that Jewish people, whether conservative or liberal, they all agreed that it was acceptable to lie to tax collectors. You know how the Pharisees or the Jews, they were very rigorous with their law. But they came to an agreement that it's fine, you can lie to them. Every normal Jew person knew that tax collectors were bad people. You couldn't hang out with them. And there in this parable, we have Jesus who's ministering to them and he is receiving them. 
you understand now why the Pharisees were grumbling and criticizing him. And these parables, these three of them, are told in this context where Jesus is receiving tax collectors and sinners. But you remember when Jesus spoke about his mission earlier on, Luke chapter 5, verse 32, in his encounter with Levi, he said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He will repeat these same words when he encounters Zacchaeus in chapter 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So Jesus was very clear with his mission, why he came into this world. And of course, these three parables are all about God's love for the sinners. And the manner in which Jesus tells this parable is so interesting. You can see how the pressure is building from one story to another. The first story, the shepherd loses one sheep out of hundred. You will think, well, one out of hundred, it's not really a big deal. And then we come to the second parable, whereby the woman loses one coin out of ten. Then it starts being a bit concerning for the owner. One out of ten, it's a bit significant. Comes to the third parable, where the father loses one son out of two. But as we'll see, actually he lost the two of them. Then you see how the pressure is very high. Let's dig into our passage and try to understand what Jesus is telling us. One thing I want us to keep in mind as we look at these three stories or these three parables is that there's this theme that runs of lost, found, and celebration. Something is lost, something is found, and then there's celebration. And each and every time, Jesus is comparing the attitude or the actions of the main character in the parable to that of God. And of course, the comparison does not even do justice because God is far, far, far beyond all these comparisons. Let's start with our first parable, the parable of the lost sheep. Verse 4 we read, What a man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. So here the sheep is lost. And as you know, the sheep is lost by complete foolishness. The sheep does not know any better. The sheep does not decide to be lost. It just happens. In fact, sheep are known to be one of the most stupid animals. So it happens that the sheep is lost. What do we learn about the shepherd? First of all, you know that the shepherd is one of the most disregarded person in the society just because of their profession. Probably people were not educated and people could not pay much attention to the shepherd. And here, although the pressure is very low, the shepherd has just lost one sheep out of hundred. What Jesus is doing here, he is portraying someone who really cares about the sheep. 
The shepherd here is the epitome of what care and concern are all about. The image that you have here, at the end of the day, the shepherd is home. He's counting his sheep. And then he realizes that one of them is missing. He does not wait for the next day to go to look after it. Or he does not print posts to put on the street, on the trees to say, my sheep is missing. If you see it, bring it to me. He stands up. He goes to look for the missing sheep. And when he finds it, what does he do? He does not just hold it or he does not start beating it, asking why are you lost or why were you lost. What he does, he lays it on his shoulders. He puts it on his shoulders. He loves the sheep. He cares for the sheep. And he rejoices. It's a kind of intimate relationship with the sheep that has been recovered. And when he gets home, what does he do? It's a celebration with the neighbors for the recovery of the Lord's sheep. And there comes verse 7. God, just like the shepherd, rejoices when a sinner repents. Verse 4, the sheep was lost. Verse 5, the sheep was found. And verse 6, the celebration. Then we go to the next parable, which is the parable of the lost coin. Verse 8, read with me. O what of or what a woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. The pressure is going up little by little. And remember, Jesus is speaking directly to the Pharisees. Now it's one out of ten. One coin, one silver coin is lost out of ten. And again, the coin is lost. It's not the fault of the owner. The owner did not decide to lose the coin. It just happened that she loses it. And this coin will be an equivalent of a day wage. And what is worth mentioning here is that this coin is so important to the owner. It's so valuable to the owner. And again, what do we learn about the owner? Well, she is a woman, which is very interesting. In the Jewish culture, you will never see people using woman as a main character in a story. That's how the Jewish culture was. But here, Jesus is using a woman And the image again that comes in mind is that of a poor woman searching for a coin that is so valuable for her in a room maybe that does not have enough light, maybe just a small window, but you can't see properly. She values the coin. She needs the coin. She's probably poor. This is why she lights the light sweeps the house and searches carefully. And I think there's a reason why Luke uses a woman in this parable. You can see how she does the search. She sweeps the entire house. She searches carefully. So I remember growing up, um, 
a time when it will happen that I lose my favorite sock, which used to happen many times. And then I will just say, Mom, I can't find my sock. And then she'll tell, she'll ask me, did you search properly in your room? It's a good boy. Just say, yes, I did. Although we know what that means. Um, but then she will come later on in the room and she will find it. She always finds things. Or even growing up, we used to have, you know, you will have your Sunday clothes that are well set apart. Uh, you know that on Sunday, these are the clothes that I'll be wearing. And among them, you'll have that shirt that, you know, it's a Sunday shirt uh, because the parents bought it. But you really don't like it much to wear it on a Sunday. And then when you know you haven't worn it for a while, you know, time is coming for me to wear it. And I'm not so much excited about wearing it. So you try and hide it somewhere in the house or even in your room so that when your mom says, this is what you are wearing, uh, you say, well, I can't find it. But I will tell you, even though you try and hide it, your mom always finds it. She always knows where it is in the house. So apparently men are not very good in searching, but women, they do search properly, so they know. So this woman carefully searches for the valuable coin. She finds it. And what does she do? She rejoices with the neighbor. And there comes verse 10. Just like the woman celebrates, the angels of God rejoice when a sinner repents. Verse 8, the coin was lost. Verse 9, the coin was found. Verse 9, the celebration. And then we come to the third parable of the two lost sons. And here the pressure is high. It's one out of two. Or as we'll see later on, maybe two out of two. Let's start with the youngest son. Just verse 12, read that with me. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And when we read verse 13, we have the idea that his departure was well planned. This young man is not intending to return home. It's as if he's telling his dad, Dad, I'm going for greener pasture far, far away. You can forget about me. You may even use my room for other things. You can make it your office or your storage because I'm leaving. It is a deliberate rebellion as compared to the story in the first two parables. So he decides to leave home. A deliberate rebellion against his father. He is tired of being home. And by asking for his inheritance, he wishes his father was dead. Because that's the only time when inheritance was shared between siblings. But the father agrees. And as we'll see later, even when the son leaves, he never stops thinking or loving his son. The young man gets where he's going. He is rich. He's got money. He's got his share of the inheritance. Probably he is the flavor of the season. Everyone is around him. He 
He's got money. He's hanging out with great people, big places. He's buying beer for everyone. He is enjoying life. Until when the money is finished. And the word the Bible uses is that he squandered it. And the idea here is like he threw it away. He misused his money. He was so reckless about the money that he has. And because there's no money, also famine came. And clearly when times are hard, friends are few. So clearly all his friends disappeared. No one wanted to take his phone call anymore. There's no interest about him anymore. He doesn't have money anymore. He ended up feeding pigs and longed to eat with them. But even that, no one gave him anything. And this is the lowest state that a Jewish person can reach. Hanging out with pigs and feeding them and eating with them. Remember, pigs were considered as unclean. But this is where he ends up. And I'm pretty sure at this point in the story, the Pharisees and the scribes, when Jesus was telling the story, they should have been nodding their heads, saying, yeah, of course, this is what he deserves for what he did to his father. He was so unconsidered. In fact, one author says about the Pharisees, this is what they would have said. There was joy in heaven when those who provoke the Lord in this world perish. So for them, they would have said that if you provoke the Lord while you are here in this world and you perish, there is joy in heaven, which is contrary to what the Bible tells us. And maybe this is what we all think. Maybe this is what is going in our hearts, saying, yeah, of course, this young boy, he deserved what happened to him. But let me remind you, my dear friend, if we were all treated according to what we deserve, no one would have been here this morning. The young man looked for freedom and happiness. He thought he would get it away from his father. But this was just an illusion. It was just a mirage. He lost everything he left home with. He lost his wealth. He lost his freedom. He lost his happiness. He lost his self-respect. He lost everything. And this, this is what exactly happens to all of us when we turn our hearts away from the Lord. When we turn our back from the Lord and follow our own desires, this is what we encounter. What the world gives us is just an illusion of happiness or freedom. It's a lie. It doesn't last. There is no satisfaction in sin. Just as St. Augustine said, Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. True happiness True wisdom, true freedom can only be found in the Lord. The young man, we continue the story. Having hit the bottom of the hole, being in a very desperate situation, we read in the verses 17 to 19, 
that we have a kind of introspection that he does of his life. He looks at himself, what is happening to him. He acknowledges his sins before God, and he repents from it. And this repentance here goes beyond the generic repentance that we normally do, whereby we just say, Lord, I'm a sinner, forgive me. This young man looks at his life. He sees the sin in his life. Lord, I'm an alcoholic. I struggle with this. I'm a liar. I struggle with this. I repent this sin before you. I don't deserve anything from you. Forgive me, Lord. So he understands that the problem, the real problem, is that the relationship between him and Father has been broken because of what he has done. But also he trusts into his Father's mercy and readiness to forgive him. And this is exactly what happens when he returns home. The father who was humiliated when this son left home, when he sees him from a distance, it seems as if he has been waiting all along for the return of the son. When he sees him from afar, what does he do? He runs to him. He is full of compassion, which against, which again is against the culture of the time. Because as a father, you are supposed to wait for the son to come home and maybe to present his excuses. But he runs to him, which again will mean that he is now humiliating himself for the sake of his son who is returning home. And when he runs to him, what does he do? He threw his arms around him. He kisses him. He kisses his son. Remember, this is the guy who has been hanging out with pigs. Probably he's smelling bad. But for the father, that does not count. He loves his son. He's, he's so happy that his son is returning home. He doesn't even want for the son's speech to end. The son has been practicing a speech that he will tell his father. And that speech is from his heart. But the father does not end for the speech, does not wait for the speech to end. What does he do? He restores him, bring him a robe, give him shoes, give him a ring. And of course, there's a celebration that is there. They kill a calf so that we can celebrate the return of this son home. What a great love from the father. There is no recrimination about what the son did. If you and me were the father to this child, when he returns home, the first day we welcome him, the second day maybe on a good evening, after having a glass of wine, we start telling, you know, son, what you did was really not good. You would not have done this. Why did you do this to yourself? This is not the way a son behaves. You know, we should have started bringing up all the mistakes that he did. Just because that's what our nature is all about. To remind him that what he did was not right. But this is not what his father does here in this passage. He welcomes him home. No recrimination. He throws his arms around him. He kisses him. He restores him. And a celebration. 
How deep is this father's love for his son? And this just reminds me of the words of this hymn that we always sing here. How deep the father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the father turns his face away, as wounds which murder the chosen one bring many sons to glory. How great is this father's love for his son. The son was lost, he's found, and there's celebration. Maybe this is you this morning. You have been wandering away from God, looking for freedom, looking for happiness in the wrong places. And there you find yourself starving in the pen with unclean pigs because sin does not give satisfaction. Remember your father wants you to come to your senses and to realize that he has something better for you and today he is extending his hand of forgiveness to you. He loves you. He has been seeking for you all along. He wants you to return, to return home, to return to him. When you turn to him, what does he do? He runs to you. And when he meets you, what does he do? He throws his arms around you. He loves you. Or maybe you are here this morning and you have a friend or a colleague or a family member who has been wandering away from God. And now that again you understand this great love of God for the sinner, wouldn't you take a step forward and tell this friend, this colleague, this family member that Jesus loves them, that they are lost without Jesus? What about the older brother? Let's quickly look at the older brother. So he does represent what the Pharisees are all about. And this is actually one of the climaxes in this parable as well. So this guy, he is a good guy on the outside. All the neighbors would have said, well, this is a good boy, a good son to his father. Look how he's submissive to his father. Look, look how he's committed to the duty as compared to the young. He is the one who tries to keep the honor of the family. When everyone sees him, they're like, yes, at least his father has got one good son. Verse 25, when he comes home, what happens? One of the servants who goes to him to break the good news about him, I think he got a cold shoulder response. And that is, must have been disappointed to the servant. He would have expected him to rejoice because the younger brother is coming. But also, I just want you to think for a minute. Imagine for a second if the older brother was the one who welcomed the younger brother home. Let's say the father was not home and the older brother was there to welcome his younger brother. What do you think would have happened when he sees his younger brother? First of all, he would have said, well, yo, people are not really shameful. And you have the guts to come back home. 
after all that you have done to the family? Are you now coming again to take what you left? So he would have made him feel bad to the point that he would have returned to where he came from as if what he he went through was not really enough already. This is what the older brother would have done to him. So this older brother, although he remained home, he was far away from the family. He was geographically close, but yet far from his father. He did not know the heart of his father at all. His service to his father was duty-bound and not out of love. He lacked the sympathy. In verse 30, we read that when he's speaking to his father, he says, This son of yours, it looks as if it is even hard for him to say, My brother. He doesn't want to use that word. And he does not hide his anger. He does not hide his hate against his brother. And of course, his attitude is that of deserving or earning. Because I am what I am, I do what I do. I deserve. It's one of someone who's self-righteous. I am not like my brother. I didn't squander your possession. In fact, I've been committed to you. But again, what does the father do to him? Well, he pleads with him as well. Remember, the father had all the right to say, well, this is my house, this is my home. You can't challenge me. I do as I please. So I decide. But again, we see a father who's pleading even with this older son. The older son is equally lost to the father just as the younger was. And even worse, he does not acknowledge, he does not know that he is lost. Maybe you have been in the Christian circle for all your life. Or maybe you have been going to church every day and you think God owes you salvation. Or maybe God owes you any favor just because you have been an active member of the church. Or maybe on top of you being a church goer every Sunday, you are also actively involved in the life of the church and you think for yourself that you have done well for yourself. God will acknowledge at least what I've done. The danger that is there, just like it was for the elder brother and the Pharisees, is that you will be tempting to think that you deserve to be a child of God because of your merits, because of what you've done, because of what you've accomplished, because of all your efforts. My dear friend, you might be part of Christ Church Midland family and yet be far from God. What God welcomes is a broken heart a repentant heart, a heart that cries out for mercy to him. That's what God looks after. The grace of God that changes us, God sees that in our hearts. 
That's why my baby could say it's only by God's grace because she understands what God has done into her life. It's not about her being involved or serving, but it's about what God has done into her life. What happens, what God welcomes is a broken heart. And when you go to him, he wraps you with his arms because he's been seeking for you, he has been waiting for you. These three parables of three lost reveal to us the heart of God for the sinners. How God loves and seeks for the sinner. The parable does not tell us at the end the final response of the older brother to the father. And maybe Jesus left it on purpose. But as we know from the rest of the scripture and the gospel, the older brother who actually represents the Pharisees, these guys will end up killing Jesus. That means their hearts will never change. But even for those who kill him, Jesus still loves them. He still loves the sinners. He still seeks after them. That's why he's reaching out to them. Aidan Wilson Toza, in his book, The Analogy of Holy, speaking of God's love, this is what he says. Because God is self-existent, his love had no beginning. Because he is eternal, his love can have no end. Because he is infinite, it has no limit. Because he is holy, his love is the quintessence of all spotless purity. Because he is immense, his love is an incomprehensibly vast, bottomless, shoreless sea. This is what he speaks about God's love, how vast it is. And this love of God, this is exactly when, what we see at the cross of Jesus, when he cries, Father, Forgive them, for they do not do what they are doing. And this includes all of us. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your great love for us sinners. If it were not for your grace in our lives, we would not have been here. Thank you because we were lost, we were found, and you celebrated when we were found, just as your word tells us. And we pray that when we think of this great love that you have for sinners, it will compel us as a redeemed family of servant on mission to really be active in sharing this great love to other people 
so that they will come to enjoy being part of your family where you throw their, your arms around them and you kiss them because you love them. And Lord, we thank you because this great love that you have demonstrated to us through Jesus is so vast. We can't compare it to anything. And thank you for loving us the way we are. And Lord, as we start a new week, we pray that you really help us to continue to be in wonder of your great love and to share it with other people. Help us to stand for you. Help us to witness for you. Help us to speak for you wherever you've placed us. All these things we pray in the mighty name of our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus, and for his sake. Amen.